0: What's the kind of the trade-off between happiness and success? If we're not getting the, the creativity and we're not getting the innovation out of people that are around our tables as managers, then we're failing.
1: Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. On this edition of the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Grace Lorden. Grace is the Founding Director of the Inclusion Initiative. She has an MSc in Behavioural Science and is Associate Professor of Behavioural Science at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Grace has a PhD in Economics and an undergraduate degree in Computer Science. Her research is focused on understanding why some individuals succeed in life and others don't. She's an expert on the effects of bias, discrimination, and technology changes. Grace is also an expert advisor to the UK government, sitting on the skills and productivity board. Her academic writings have been published in top international journals, in economics, and the broader social sciences. Big Think, Take Small Steps, and Build the Future You Want is her first book. So Grace, before we delve into all the work you're doing on behavioral science and understanding why some individuals succeed in life uh, and others don't. Tell us about your early years, tell us about your school years and whether um, you saw a a future in our academia being the thing that you always wanted to do.
0: Well, thanks Mark, firstly, for having me. I, I can safely say, I think when I went to university, I wouldn't have understood at all what an academic did. So I would have seen maybe on the TV, some images of professors giving lectures in American TV shows but I never really had a burning ambition to be an academic. And I always feel bad saying that because I meet so many PhD students who know where their compass is facing that come through the LSE. But I definitely wasn't one of those young people. I would describe myself actually as somebody who was very restless at school. Um, I did well in exams, but I think I drove the teachers crazy because I, I, I had trouble sitting still and I had absolutely no idea what I would do when I went to university. Um, and my mom really wanted me to go to university. I was the first in my family to go to university. I think she saw promise in me. Um, so I ended up actually studying computer science and that was my first degree. And I think when I entered it, cognitive dissonance had set in. And I imagined myself being in Silicon Valley and you know, being in, in a company, again, really in tune with what I saw on TV and not really in tune with the tasks. And then I studied computer science for my first year in university. And during that time, I realized I really did not like it. So it was okay, um, but it wasn't something that I wanted to spend my, my life doing. And I did some work experience that solidified that decision. So then what happened was I ended up taking on economics as kind of a light relief. If you can imagine economics might be a light relief, but it was my only it was my only choice. And I did enjoy the subject. I, I still wasn't pointing towards academia when I left after my um, after my degree. And actually a kind of cruel twist of faith was that my mom was diagnosed um, with ovarian cancer. Um, so I made the decision to stay in Cork, which is my hometown. And the job that I got was as a a teaching assistant to the head of department in in the University of Cork. And that's kind of how my journey into academia began. So very much a, a job of convenience. And then I really realized, actually the time that you're in front of the classroom you get to shape people, which is quite exciting. And maybe I get to be a a bit of a better teacher than what I experienced. And then kind of behind the scenes, which I had a very bad understanding until I did my master's, um, you can do research. And actually that research doesn't need to be boring. It doesn't need to be something that goes missing in the library stacks. You can actually study things that might actually change lives of people for the better. Um, And since then I've had a, a kind of a steady compass, but it took me a while, it took me a while.
1: And and so tell us, you you did your Master's in Behavioural Science, so why did you choose to do a a Master's in Behavioural Science and what did you do your Master's in, what did you study?
0: So I'll tell you, my my master's was in economics. I did study behavior. You are right. I studied um, people's drinking habits, Um, but there was no such thing as behavioral science. Or if there wasn't, it wasn't in Ireland then. Um, And I really was interested in understanding why people do what they do. Um, As I kind of matured as a researcher, I got more interested in understanding why people end up with outcomes that have nothing to do with themselves. So I, I, I ended up kind of studying discrimination technology shocks, but my starting point was really the intent action gap, even though I never called it that because if this was an economics class um, and really taking the point that people are rational And we sometimes see that they're not rational. And can I explain their their deviations within 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 that framework? So I mean, if you if you were to go back to my CV, it's computer science, economics, econometrics, if you can believe it. So it's like maths, maths and more maths. Um, And these days, I actually get to kind of take a step away from that and think what apply the tools that I actually learned um, to problems that I think people find much more interesting out in the public.
1: And can you remember the um, the outcomes of your masters? What what you concluded about um, drinking?
0: Yes, no, I do. So I I studied particularly the. Um, Um, laws, drinking laws. So price sensitivity and how people respond to price. And I studied blood alcohol concentration. And it was the blood alcohol concentration laws within Ireland and that variation that caused the greatest impact. And actually, I got a very high distinction in that thesis. And now that I'm talking to you about it, I'm convinced I was wrong. Because I'm convinced that the around the time the blood alcohol concentration laws were going up, Ireland had these really emotive adverts on the TV where they showed children dying in car crashes and pregnant women dying in car crashes that were caused by alcohol, um, um, people who were driving drunk, and because the timing coincided with the blood alcohol concentration laws, I certainly was picking up some of those impacts, and I think that's actually what got the Irish public more than the laws itself. Actually, in the end.
1: And so, when you finish your um, your masters, what did you go to do then?
0: So when I finished my master's, that was when I, I took the time out as the teaching um, the teaching um, fellow in UCC. Um, and during that time, I was really kind of taking care of my mom and they were really kind to me. I did my teaching hours and they didn't put any extra burden on me, which I, which I to this day, I'm grateful. And, and if, to this day, it's why I, I really think that allowing people to have time off work when they need it will kind of ensure their career in the long run. And then I went to Trinity, so I ended up applying for a research role that was going to be um, an economics role. And the pay wasn't very good and rents were really high in Dublin at the time. So I tried to bargain for pay. And then they offered me a fully funded PhD scholarship, which had no extra money, um, monetary value for me, but meant that I would actually get a qualification. So I grabbed that. So I thought that would be something that I could do for the next three years. Um, And then off off I went again, still studying health behaviours during my PhD period, but becoming closer to being kind of a data science to slash behavioural scientist.
1: And, and then what next? I, I mean, people just like to understand the journeys that people go on. So you've been to Trinity, you've got your PhD. What came next?
0: So I was somebody who had no idea about like, the rules of the game in academia or what you should do next or how you, where you should actually go for go for jobs. And somebody told me kind of year two and a half into my PhD that it was really hard to get a tenured post. Um, so I applied for a tenured post in Australia and, and I succeeded. So I actually left for Australia and I spent um, teaching in the University of Queensland two years in the economics department. And within those that two years, I'd secured my post at the LSE. So I, I got to move back. But they were two brilliant years. Um, and by the time I was moving back, I kind of understood what academia was about a bit more. Although I will tell you, even now, as you advance in your career, you realize that the kind of rules of the game, for want of a better word, do change as you kind of go up as you go up the pole.
1: And and, um, as you say, you went to the LSE, uh, you're an associate professor there in behavioral science, but also you're the the founding director of the Inclusion Initiative. Tell us about that. What is the Inclusion Initiative?
0: So about 10 years ago, I started working with people who put money into companies in concentrated portfolios. So if they don't choose company A, um, they're choosing company B and there's a big opportunity cost. And I, for some reason, I ended up talking to them about their decision making. i like to study it and then they would like for me to give them feedback. And it kind of involved in that I ended up studying decision making. Um, and one of the things that really came out of that was, if you don't have inclusion, which seems very obvious, but if you don't have inclusion of voices around the table when you're making decisions, you make a lot of errors. Um, and you make errors in directions that can be really, really large sometimes. And that inclusion means more than hearing voices around the table, which is the traditional kind of definition of it. It also means that people are actively listening, which, you know, people are really bad at actually in, in meetings. Often they're waiting to say their piece and trying to get their point across and not really listening to other to other other people so during this time i was kind of really noticing that there was this massive increase in hr and in money being spent in diversity and inclusion and i, I started tracking the data and what was really interesting to me is that even though companies are spending millions of pounds on on dni every year and the blue chips are actually spending that on their own not even aggregated together there's no difference actually in the outcomes for some of the groups that they're trying to tackle so you know the glacier pace for women is slow we're not really seeing much more representation and at the same time in Britain we're kind of stuck in this kind of productivity trap so I kind of had this idea what if we put them together and really gave leaders the tools to be inclusive leaders um, not counting the number of women around the table or not counting the other types of representation around the table but really being cognizant of different perspectives different backgrounds and then mechanically you get more women and you get more representation. And what if we gave those tools and we changed minds? Will we see productivity differences? So the Inclusion Initiative is really applying that. It's going from the lab, where we experiment on people in in, in traditional laboratory settings, we're going into companies, and then at the macro level, we're linking inclusion um, to productivity. And I hope, you know, if if I meet you in a decade, which I I hope uh, I will, that I'll be able to say to you that we definitely made, that we definitely had an impact. as with all things in life I've re- I realized really quickly when I opened the inclusion initiative my impact is really only if I collaborate with other people who are different to me as well so we have a lot of like relationships not just with companies but with charities who are experts at particular uh, understanding particular underrepresentation of other individuals so I'm hoping that I'd be part of kind of a bigger story in 10 years time which is quite exciting.
1: And so in terms of inclusion are the best outcomes where you have a mix of gender Uh, social mobility backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, disability backgrounds. What, What sort of mix produces the best results?
0: And this we don't know, and this is what we have to figure out. So I recently um, applied for a grant for the ESRC and I got a kind of peer reviewed externally and somebody rightfully told me what's the allocative efficiency when it comes to diversity um, and can you have too much diversity. And it's it's hard to work out because when diverse groups come together, they don't automatically work well together. So we've really mixed evidence actually on that links diversity to task, task completion. And that's because a necessary condition for for, um, diverse teams to work well together is that you need to have inclusion. Um, And I think the second part of it, which is really tricky, is that the research that links diversity clearly to task completion, the diversity is all around backgrounds and perspectives. So, for example, if I am to replace men who were traditionally at the C-suite with the daughters of the of the of the CEOs rather than the sons, that doesn't really get me the type of diversity where the literature sets us up to be. So it, it's not an easy question. And I and again, I don't know if we'll have answered it in a decade, but what I hope we'll have answered is how do you bring different people who really have these different perspectives together in a way that you actually get better outcomes. And you're not just dealing with conflict and longer meetings, which is, which is, which is, the, which is the downside when you don't have inclusion.
1: And, and so what are the keys do you think from the work you've done to date on having a more inclusive environment? I mean, you've said that greater inclusivity brings better results, uh, better decision-making, but what are the key requirements to have an inclusive culture?
0: So I think it comes down to having enough managers across all levels, and particularly in the middle of the business where these are the people who are meeting the pipeline, who have have smaller teams, who A, are motivated for profits, and B, recognize that because they're motivated for profits, one of the biggest gifts they can give to themselves is bring the different voices around the table together that it's their gift to have different perspectives. So if if I go into a meeting as a manager I'm kind of under under that narrative. I'm not the person who's commanding and controlling and telling people what to do, rather I'm kind of sitting there actively listening and I'm safe in my knowledge that I'm the decision maker and I get to bring those ideas together. So for me it's really a story about the manager and as soon as I um I, as soon as I hear that people are kind of using human resources to create inclusive cultures. I do kind of make a face because I think then it becomes something that's different to your job. So it's really the understanding of the manager that it's a core part of their job to be inclusive leaders. And if I could have a change in a decade, being an inclusive leader would just be being a leader. So when we see leadership training at the LSE or London Business School or any other university, it's teaching people how to sit quietly listen to the voices around the table and bring those perspectives together.
1: And then you've uh, done a lot of work recently on understanding why some individuals succeed in life and others don't. So so tell us about that. Tell us what your conclusions are.
0: Yes, I mean, so really what I try to do is if I think about competence um, and if I rule out competence, talent and ability, what are the things that hold people back? And, you know, I started off looking at discrimination and and I think that there is still discrimination and I don't want to deny, you know, sexism and racism. People do have those experiences, but I think on the whole, what really holds people back is favoritism for other people. So in the sense that you might be working in a company and opportunities are given to somebody that isn't you, not because the person dislikes you or really wants to slight your career, but just because they have preferences towards the other person. And that could be because they have an affinity in the same background that they went to the same university. And in some ways, it's kind of a dismal conclusion because things like sexism and racism, we can legislate against, we can police. Something like favoritism, particularly when you have these kind of subtle opportunities and there's kind of this rolling ball, that, that kind of aggregates over the career is much harder to, is much harder to police. And I and I think kind of going beyond that, if we think about the role of favoritism, one thing that's quite stunning, and you can think about kind of stories in the public domain, people will recognize straight away, versus even in their private life, are people who are favored in groups get to fail much more regularly that individuals who aren't favored. So if you are in a privileged position where you have a really strong network around you, um, if you fail, the chances of being picked up by that network are really, really high and you'll get another opportunity, even if your failure was, was spectacular. Um, whereas people, you mentioned folk from lower socioeconomic background, you know, people of color um, don't have those strong networks necessarily. So then if we think about the policy, it's really about raising awareness about that and trying to artificially create those networks so talented people don't let, get left behind.
1: And then how do you define success? Do you define it in terms of monetary reward or Position achieved in an organization?
0: Both for me. So I look at kind of um income and I look at um how a person's career journey has been relative to their peers. Um I am also interested in well-being. Um, but for me, it's it's it, it's trickier and it's something that I'm kind of battling with at the moment in the sense that I think when we are in work and we're really fulfilling our purpose, and we're really kind of being stretched and on our tippy toes with respect to kind of our skills and talent, we probably wouldn't be happy in the way traditional happiness researchers call happy. So we wouldn't be kind of laughing and joking. We might feel kind of mildly stressed out, but I think that level is probably good for human beings. And if I think you get over, kind of over the next decade, that's something that I really kind of want to look into. What's the kind of the trade-off between happiness and success firstly which I've done which I've done more of but secondly when we think about the type of fulfillment if you like or purpose that we're trying to give people within work is it really close to happiness Um, and I wonder actually that the push for happiness within work if it actually kind of loses the ability to kind of extract the best from talent in a way that would be good for the company and the individual themselves.
1: And I'm sure there are people listening to this, Dr. Lorden, who are saying, I want to be successful in work. (laughs) Uh, what, What advice would you give them? I mean, if you've now looked at, obviously, what makes some people succeed and others not, how can people help themselves?
0: So I think the first thing is to do an audit of the week and how you actually spend your time and then divide how you spend your time into three different types of things. Um, the type of things that are advancing you for your future. So, you know, you're, when you're doing them, they can feel a bit gnarly, but you know that it's going, it's investing in in the future. The type of things that make you happy in the moment, spending time with your family. And then the group of things that we're doing more and more each day, which is, you know, busy work where we're wasting time or kind of this busy social time where I'm doom scrolling Twitter, I'm spending too much time on email. um, And and I'm not happy in those activities. And for that third bucket, try and reduce the amount of time that you spend on those things and then identify some simple habits that you can embed in your daily routine weekly routine now that will give you benefits in the future so you know i always kind of say to people if you want to be successful one of the best things you can do for yourself is say you know what if it all worked out if i didn't have the income constraints if i didn't have the family constraints if i didn't have these kind of blockades that i normally put in 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 front of myself that stop me moving forward and then when you have that vision link small habits that allow you to get to that vision and what that means is that you're not going to be getting to your destination in 4 weeks or you know 3 months or 6 months it's going to take a longer time but you're pointed in that direction and you're and you're, and you're actually moving forward and then the second thing is really look at your networks and think about expanding your networks and putting time into expanding your networks. And again, when it comes to networking, don't expect there to be a reward in a week, in a month, even in a year. Um, But generally what's really kind of cool about developing your networks is you end up having great friendships, firstly, but people will spot opportunities for you when you're not necessarily expecting them to, and they'll come knocking on your door. Um, and I think kind of going into those in this kind of reciprocal um, reciprocal nature where you as an individual are kind of paying it forward, paying it backwards, looking out for opportunities for individuals. Again, it puts you in, in a community. So I think if you really wanna be successful and, and particularly if you're kind of feel you're starting from zero, looking at your habits, embedding small different habits, and looking at your networks and expanding your networks are definitely the two the
1: two gifts you can give to yourself. We know that you're advising the government on skills and productivity. and um, You talked a little earlier about uh, mediocre managers. So to what extent do you think mediocre managers are having an impact on UK productivity?
0: I mean, I think it's the key, isn't it, in professional work in the sense that if we're not getting... The the creativity and we're not getting the innovation out of people that are around our tables as managers, then we're failing. So we're failing the team, we're failing the individuals in the team and we're failing, we're failing the firm. So I think kind of flipping that around and thinking about how we can actually change the kind of attitude of people who've been managing for a long time in a particular style for me is definitely one of the keys to 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 moving kind of productivity forward within, within firms and you know I think a lot of it comes down to human ego I mean you know sometimes when I'm in a meeting and with my team and my team are very diverse and If they have an idea that is is totally different to anything that I would have picked for a moment, it does feel uncomfortable to me. I kind of think, well, that feels a bit far off for me. It's it's probably not what what I want to do. And I usually just try and kind of sit with it for a while. And and they're usually right, particularly if a few diverse people are saying the same thing. And and they're they're diverse in different aspects and, and particularly with their disciplines. You know, I think if we if we can really embrace the idea that we should be talking across disciplines, we learn we learn so much more. And that's something that can be really retrained, you know, kind of in in each individual that being exposed to people who who feel better than us in a moment is actually really good for us. And in fact, if you're always in the room and you feel like you're the smartest person in the room, you're probably not growing very much as an individual. So, yeah, I, I would love to I would love to change how how people manage across the entire in uh, across entire organizations.
1: And, and a little earlier, you, you made reference to cronyism and. Uh people being appointed because of who they know or where they come from rather than on the basis of ability. If you think about your work on the mediocre manager and on cronyism, how would you regard them as um, opportunities to improve UK productivity against, say, the things you kind of hear from governments about building faster roads or railways or investing in technology? Where where does this human element come in?
0: I think, again, you know, and and I kind of mentioned my kind of idea of rethinking that everybody needs to be kind of happy at work. And I think we've we've come to this kind of place in work where we feel that we should have people around us who make us feel very comfortable. And I think it's true that our characters shouldn't be attacked on on, on, on a regular basis. But the ideas that we have should be hold over the coals. And if I'm somebody who engages in cronyism and I'm hiring somebody like myself, if I have nine graces around the table and I'm the 10th person, the added value I'm giving is really low in that situation. So for me, really kind of looking at hiring from the perspective of not cultural fit, but do we have somebody actually whose background we don't recognize in this particular group? And do they have skills that they can actually bring to the conversation that's the person who we should want to hire so I'm really anti cronyism. Um, And, you know, I think, even with my own PhD students, um, I I teach them and I train them to the best of my ability to go and get another job in another place where they'll be very, very happy. Um, And I think if I do a good job in those four years, then they will be employable, and they have loads of opportunities and then they'll forge their own way. And that really comes from the ethos of thinking that the best thing that we can actually do is separate from the people who have the same views for us so that you know, we kind of have these kind of ripple effects across the world. So you know, I've never been asked that question before, but I think if we could rule out cronyism and hiring like me and affinity bias within companies, you absolutely would see um, productivity gains.
1: And how, how would you put it to the UK government in terms of you're sitting around the table, you're advising on skills and productivity, what would be their focus of improving that against technology investment or infrastructure investment I mean how seriously do you think governments take uh, improved skills in management to drive uh, inclusivity and greater debate
0: so I think I think the fact that and this isn't just the government by the way I think the fact that it and it's not just our government but it it, 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 it also kind of goes into companies I think the fact that we don't take seriously managerial skills when it comes to productivity is because in some senses managerial skills are what people would call a soft skill you know I might like to call them a core skill but they they are things that we kind of think that people actually have inherently and we're really only at the beginning of the journey of having evidence of how to teach soft skills well in the same way that we can teach maths well and digital skills well and also thinking about how do I test on the other side, which, which, which we know the government loves to do in Britain, they like to test the, the kids and the, and the university students, how do we actually test whether or not somebody has improved their skills or not, that's still something that we are, we are working on. So I am sympathetic to the view that, you know, we know how to teach digital skills well, we know how to teach maths and science well, that these are the things that we should invest in. But equally, I don't think that they need to be orthogonal to each other. I think it's simply the matter of if somebody is learning science for for the first time and their idea is that they're going to go on to be a manager, why not teach them managerial skills? Or if they don't think that they're going to go on to be a manager, why not teach them commercialization skills? So, you know, our scientists are amazing here in the UK, um, but we probably don't commercialize them as much as we should compared to other countries in terms of kind of bringing um, profits back into the country. And that's a skill that would be complementary to what somebody is learning. So it it would be wonderful if we didn't kind of see this as either or. But we recognize that, you know, management, project management, commercialization are things that enhance the core skills that we want to be investing in anyway, and and give it some time and give it a small amount of budget.
1: Tell us about your first book, Think Big.
0: When I started in um, LSE, I was asked a lot to give talks to companies. And I usually would talk about um, the behavior differences between groups of people, usually men and women, and what that meant for pay increases, what that meant for promotions, what that meant for negotiations. Um, And what was really interesting about this is that I would talk then at the end about how we fix things. And I would always focus on the company. So I would say these are the big changes that you should have in the company. And and people would say to me, well, that's really wonderful, but I'm not the CEO. This is why I'm here listening to you at five o'clock on a a Friday night. What can I do? And I never really had a good answer. Um, So Think Big was really to try to write the behavioral science lessons from an individual perspective about how that individual could be successful if the odds were stacked against them, if they were plateauing, if they weren't sure what their career was, if they really were kind of unclear about where they would be in 10 years time, and the book then becomes kind of a framework for doing just that so it starts with um, getting people to think big and thinking you know what if it all works out. And then the remainder of the book is about the type of habits that you want to embed in kind of your weekly lifestyle in order to point you in that direction. And I think if anybody who's listening does decide to buy Think Big, I will say that the journey is like a medium term journey. You're talking about years rather than talking about kind of weeks or months. But for most people, I think that's much more practical because it allows people have lives, you know, have children, have caring responsibilities have work-life balance which some other career planning books don't
1: and and tell me what was it that um decided you to write the book
0: um so the the first the first thing kind of the the idea came from I guess these company talks the ultimate moment where I decided to submit the book actually came from um I had a I'm a type 1 diabetic and I had a DKA so I ended up in hospital and um I really kind of wanted to do something different. I don't know why, I mean, maybe it, maybe it kind of came with having such a, a big health shock, but I really wanted to do something kind of a pivot from my career that I hadn't done already. And then it was, I decided actually, this is what I'm going to spend you know the next few years doing is bringing that evidence together and writing a book. So the, the exciting part was finding an agent and finding a publisher. The harder part absolutely was actually delivering on the promises that I made to both of those people. <laughs>
1: And, and tell, so tell us a little about how you write. Are you a, an early morning writer, a late night writer, a snatch a bit of time whenever you can? How, how did you structure yourself to write? So I would pick days.
0: And I have to say often it would be Saturday would be one of the days. But I committed to at least two days, if not three, where I intensively wrote. Um, and for me, that can actually mean writing for two hours in the morning. And then I, 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 I've hit a writer's block. Or if I kind of hit flow, I could go incredibly late into the evening. Um, But just committing that these were my writing days. And on those days, I wouldn't do anything else. So I wouldn't check emails. I wouldn't scroll social media. um, And that for me in itself was kind of habit transforming. Um, But definitely earmarking particular blocks of time is important for me.
1: And, And tell me, have you got another book that you're working on now or another book in mind?
0: I'm shaping ideas for a book, but I haven't settled on one. So I was really interested in curiosity for a period. Um, I'm really thinking about the value of curiosity and and the value of being bored um, to kind of allow you to be much more creative. And I was kind of fleshing that out and 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 I don't think I have anything more unique than what was on the market. I think this is the problem because everyone's writing books. There's so many great great ideas out there. So that's not ready yet. Um, and then of course I got, to, because you've asked me about the mediocre manager already. I got massively swept up in that because it was a piece of research that I did that, was, that I really enjoyed doing, but it got a huge impact um, kind of within firms and the media, um, people in government have talked to me about it. So I was kind of thinking maybe I should be focused on a book what to do if, you're, if, if, if you find yourself kind of not having access to a good manager or not having access to a good advocates to push you forward in your career. So it's something that I'm working on, but I don't know what it's going to be yet.
1: I, um, I've come across a number of managers who I thought were very talented. And um, they all had the trait that they were curious, as you're suggesting. They were always interested to know how things worked. But the other thing they had, which was extraordinary, is that they were all lazy. And so they spent most of their time thinking about how they could do things uh, more quickly or in a way that was gonna be easier for them. And it seemed to drive a lot of innovation. Um, And they would often put things over as, I think if we did it this way, it would be a lot easier for all of us. Um, Have you ever come across that?
0: you know, it's interesting. I think that what you describe when you put these kind of time bounds on something can get huge productivity boosts that aren't sustainable. So, um, and I've never seen anyone really kind of go into this And in, but if you can kind of imagine somebody who we work incredibly hard, if we get the best out of them over a particular year, what happens to them then when we want them to work in their fifties, sixties and seventies, you know, I, I think the, the interesting part of life now is that we have these kind of marathon careers um so in some ways yeah I it, it, obviously I'm going to favor my own method but it feels much more humane than what you described doesn't it <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and so tell me what's. Uh, uh, you've obviously got a book in mind but tell me what's what's next for you what's what what are you going to do over the next five ten years
0: so the inclusion issue of the LSE is kind of taking um a lot of my time at the moment um I'm building an index that's measuring inclusivity um, in firms um, with City Bank, City Investment Bank that will be given to their institutional investors and then we hope to find a partner who will index it and put it out in, in, into the world, and I'm really hoping that that will be an index that kind of sits alongside the E in ESG. Capturing the S, and actually, to be honest, it, in the end, it's capturing governance because I, you know, exclusion is, is, is a real pulse point for governance. Um, and I think if, if, if I were to see, you know, investors and even consumers being guided by the index that I put out there, that would be extraordinary. I think a good second um, outcome, and I've said this to the funder um, of the work, is, you know, even if we build this index and somebody else manages to do better, that's really the whole point is that we want people to be measuring inclusion making investment in purchase, uh, and purchasing decisions based on the ethos of the firm. So even if my work is the one to inspire others to do much better work and they succeed beyond me, that will be enough as well.
1: Well, it sounds like a very noble lane, Grace, in terms of uh, trying to help productivity and trying to make uh, society, uh, business particularly, more inclusive. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, Thank you very much for your time. Uh, To all of you listening, I can highly recommend Grace's first book, Think Big. Um, I'm sure that you will get a lot from it. As Grace said, it's not a quick fix to how you improve over a month or a year, but it's about how you can think differently and be more successful. So Grace, thank you very much for joining us on this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast, and good luck for the future.
0: Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.